Hello and welcome to Undercommon Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. As the length of conflict continues, the opposing forces may start to resemble each other. I'm Ian Woodworth, and I'm joined by my co-host James Daly. Today, we are taking a little break from our trip through the Outer Plains while we work on doing research for our next batch of episodes and decided to present a little bit more of my homebrew material. One of the podcasts that I listen to, The Goblin's Corner, Matt and Eric over there have been lamenting for a few episodes now that we really need a Dragoon class. And it just so happened that years ago, I made a Dragoon class and I've been working on it and editing it and fiddling with it and getting it to where I feel comfortable with it. And I think I've finally gotten it to a point where I'm ready to show it to the world. Yeah, this has been an interesting evolution. So Ian has shown me this class off and on as he's tinkered with it over time. And when it first started, it was a 3.5 playable class. And so again, we skipped the Dark Ages. And so he's creating a new class, but he's also taking his original ideas and porting them over to 5th edition as well. And I have to say it's looking really solid right now. I like how this has developed over time. Yeah, it's gone through a bunch of different iterations. And I think that I've finally managed to cut enough of the fluff from it to make it a solidly actually playable class. So you talk about cutting the fluff off this dragoon and all I can think of is like some young dragon wormling with feather down almost and now it's got its first molt and it's stepping through into you know closer to adulthood and yeah I'm a geek I have birds if you can't hear them in the background so I'm totally aware of fluff. It's like that one uh There's this one Reddit post that's been floating around for forever about different quote-unquote terrible D&D character ideas, and one of them being a dragonborn who walks around trying to convince everyone that he's an Aarakocra who has a skin condition that made all of his feathers fall out. I absolutely love that post, and yes. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly what I think of when you say that. (laughs) Yeah, so just to give a little bit of a primer on where I'm approaching this from, this is definitively based on the Dragoon class from Final Fantasy. This is the very nimble, high maneuverability fighter with the spear that jumps up in the air and smacks things and, you know, just goes and pogo sticks his enemies. Versus, you know, the Dragoon from, say, something like StarCraft, which I would absolutely love, which would be a giant mechanical thing, which would be kind of a cool construct to make. Or even like a historical Dragoon, which would be like a mounted rifleman almost, kind of almost like a conquistador, which would also be a great class to make for D&D. And now I'm going to have to like try to put some thought into that. Yeah, I mean, they are roughly equivalent to one another. The Dragoon being the soldier from the British Empire and the Conquistadors being definitively Spanish. Well, that means that the Dragoons were just wrong. (laughs) It just means that they have to wear red. That too. But the way that I approached Dragoons, this all started many, many moons ago, back when the Firefox extension StumbleUpon was still a thing. As an aside, I miss StumbleUpon. I miss it so much. I found so many cool things because of StumbleUpon. Yeah, that was a great little place to find rabbit holes. Oh, so many rabbit holes. But one day I was bored and stumbling through the internet, and I came across where someone had made, it was a fourth edition homebrew Dragoon class. And I thought, this is really cool. And I bookmarked it and didn't think anything of it until I went to go back and find it like a year and a half later, and I couldn't. Because, you know, the page had been taken down or 
Because it, it was fourth edition, and they hung their head in shame. Ah. Uh, <laughs> so that particular one also had as part of it one of the early mechanics that I used, which is tying the dragoon to a dragon wormling kind of like an animal companion. And like I said, I started off with that mechanic and I tried everything in my power to shoehorn that in to make it work. And ultimately I decided to ditch it because it just didn't work the way I wanted it to. I could not make it actually fit the way I wanted it to. Mechanics would be hard right now, particularly with fifth edition because the rangers and their companions have I mean, people flatly saying that it's very lackluster. It doesn't work terribly well. This leaves a lot of your rangers to be kind of underwhelming and underpowered. And maybe if they revise that in 5th edition or, you know, us being a homebrew podcast, maybe that's something we can visit in the future. But yeah, your animal companions right now are not really a viable thing so much in 5th edition. It's a lot of extra bookkeeping for very little benefit, really. Yeah, you get so much more mechanical advantage from, say, even just a conjure woodland beasts spell than you do from having an actual animal companion and they did address that a bit whenever tasha's came out with their whole revised ranger class that they did in there and it is better i still don't really care for it but then again the ranger was never really my class i never gravitated towards that sort of character so right no i i totally get that i mean i am sure there is a personality link to what kind of classes or D&D things you can go and I'm sure there's been psychology papers of all kinds written down because you know those psychology geeks are playing some tabletop games as much as anyone else and that in itself could be a fascinating research but yeah Ranger's never been one of my favorite classes either so again it's kind of nothing we're super familiar with but again that animal companion I really think that the rangers are still underwhelming and definitely need to be addressed. I'm glad they addressed them to a point, but there's still a lot of room for improvement. Yeah, and that's definitely a conversation for another episode. We're not here to talk about the ranger today, so let's just go ahead and move on a little bit past that. But originally, the wormling was intended to act more like a wizard's or warlock's familiar than it was a ranger's beast companion, which whenever you're talking about something that ends up getting as much power and as many hit points as a dragon wormling does that balance just goes out the window and then on top of all of that there was a mechanic for what happens to a dragoon if their wormling dies and there's a whole big table involved with all of that and that was something that i had hard-boiled into the mechanics that you have to have a more robust and more high survival companion in order to pull that off. And I just could not get the balance right. And so I ultimately decided to just cut it entirely. And so what we have here is something that a lot of people, and you'll find it from podcasts like ours and stuff that we sometimes make to anything online, because there's a ton of stuff online, to your buddy wants to bring you a homebrew class. And the class can be truly inspired and have some great potential. But if the mechanics and the balance don't fit, Ultimately, it's just not going to work right, and as you put it on the table and play it, it's going to slowly start falling apart. Or it's going to be so overpowered that nobody else is going to be able to have any kind of fun. And so that's kind of some of the stuff we're going to address in this podcast this week as well. 
Yeah, that is something that I do notice a lot with a lot of the homebrew stuff that gets posted online. A lot of it is it's a class that somebody went and got all excited and put everything together. And I truly am inspired by these people because they're throwing all of their creative juices into this document. But a lot of the times it's something that still needs to be pared down. It still needs to be condensed and distilled and made into a more cohesive unit. You can tell that they had all of these great ideas and they just wanted to throw all of their great ideas into this class because they're just so cool and they're just so hyped about the whole concept of it. But you really have to take the time to step back and look at the whole picture, look at the whole class in its entirety and decide, okay, I can prune this bit off here and I can prune that bit off there and narrow the focus of it a little bit. Right. The menu can look amazing, but you only get to pick two sides. Yes, that's a pretty good analogy there. So let's go ahead and bring out this dragoon here and show us what you got with it. And we can talk about what we had to change or parse back or peel back. But let's see what we're dealing with for the start. Okay, just before we get into it, really, I wanted to talk a little bit about how because this is something that I have created, I have tailored for my homebrew world. This is something that I need to discuss a little bit of the lore behind it in order to understand the mechanics that I go into later on. Okay, that's fair. So the Dragoons as a whole are a martial order that has been organized by a coalition of metallic dragons. There's been a long, almost cold war going on between the metallic and chromatic dragons in my world since time immemorial. And the metallic dragons have finally come to the decision that we need to change our strategy if we want to get anything more than just a stalemate out of this. And so what they have decided to do is they have decided to add front to the war to try and win the war by attrition. And what they're doing is whenever someone slays a chromatic dragon that has a clutch... So that has eggs that they can collect. What they're doing is they're taking these eggs back to their chapter houses. And they are training these very specialized soldiers to imprint to these wormlings as they hatch. And through this whole sort of psychic link that they get with this wormling, they are basically trying to overcome the chromatic dragon's evil tendencies with nurture versus nature. So in this case, they are fully embracing the philosophy that the hand that rocks the cradle is the hand that rules the world. Yes, absolutely. And this is still a fairly new concept. This is still something that hasn't really been going on long enough for them to truly see if it's actually going to work in practice. It's still just a theory, but there are individuals that have been imprinted to their dragons for 50, 60, 70 years now, and it seems like it's working, but they are still adolescent dragons. They haven't really matured yet, and these are all going to be the individuals that are from the long-lived races. So, you know, your elves and your dwarves and your gnomes to a certain extent. So they still have a good bit of time. Yeah, I was going to say, a dragon lives a really, really long time. So that childhood is also going to be really, really long. Absolutely. And so that's the concept behind all of this, is that these dragoons are kind of a paladin-like 
order that serves these metallic dragons in their war against the chromatic dragons. And so their abilities are coming from a place where they're having to magically enhance their abilities almost like a warlock would in order to be more capable to combat other dragons. And that gives me some ideas that I might bring up later because talking about that familiar or having some issues that might give us some options to help work that in. If you wanted to try to go, like I said, I like the class now as it's fairly solid, but I might have an idea or two. Okay. Yeah, we'll definitely leave the floor open for discussion. So let's go ahead and get started into this. The Dragoon started off fully on the skeleton of the fighter class. And I, after a while, came to the realization that adding the base fighter abilities on top of everything that they're getting as Dragoon class abilities was just too much. Oh yeah, that would be... I mean, giving them all of the stuff that they were getting plus Second Wind and Action Surge by themselves was just too much. Yeah, that gets super beefy. And again, that comes back to that balance issue. And while the fighters are a fundamentally a very malleable class, they lead themselves open to having a bunch of archetypes or subtypes beneath them. As we flesh this out, I really like how these went, and they definitely needed to be their own. Their own class versus just an addition to something else. All right, so for starters... I left the D10 hit die because it is a martial class. It is a melee martial class. All of the archetypes are strict melee. All of the weapon proficiencies are strict melee. I mean, the only thing that you're going to get with range on it is a javelin or a spear that you can throw, but that you can also stab with. So that's where I'm starting from here. So we're leaving it at a D10 hit die. For your proficiencies, you're getting light armor and shields because they are a very dexterous, very mobile fighter class. I didn't really want to throw anything heavier on them because they're supposed to be jumping around. Jump way up in the air and come down on your enemies. You're not going to do that in full plate. Why not? No, yeah, that makes sense too. And again, I like this too. This is a good consideration. It does limit them a bit, but it also helps balance out that heavier hit die they do have. Again, a medium armor. You could almost argue for a medium armor at some points, maybe later, but I do like that you did parse it back. So they are going to be in and out. These are almost like a skirmisher unit more than a tank or kind of like a big beefy unit. You know, this isn't necessarily a meat shield. Yeah, these aren't going to be able to soak a hit like a fighter or a barbarian or a paladin will. They'll almost function kind of almost like a swashbuckling a roguid, where again, your goal is to come in from far, engage, and then step back if possible. Yeah, absolutely. And as we get into the different archetypes, the different specializations that you get, some of these comments that you're making are going to come in because there is one of the archetypes that is a more defensive one that actually does gain proficiency with medium armor. There are some that get the ability to disengage. There are some that get the ability that if they make an attack on somebody, they get to move away and that creature that they attacked isn't able to make attacks of opportunity against them. Things like that. So these are all hard-boiled into the archetypes which because dragons are so varied in and amongst themselves, I felt like putting that much variance in the archetypes was necessary in order to make them feel distinct. Yeah, and again, that is a great thematic choice. And when you are homebrewing, a lot of your choices are going to be, at least they should be, in my opinion, thematic. They should give you opportunity for roleplay. They should give you opportunity to make your character alive and not just be 
a stat block on the table. Right. So weapons, you gain proficiency with all simple melee weapons. So you don't get a light crossbow. You don't get short bow. You don't get darts. But you do get all of your simple melee weapons. And in addition, you get the glaive, the halberd, the lance, longsword, pike, short sword, and trident. So you get all your pokey sticks. You get all your pokey sticks plus longsword and short sword. Okay. Personally... Just putting it out there. The only reason why they're getting longsword and shortsword proficiencies is because the Dragoon in Final Fantasy 2 slash 4 gets swords. Fair enough. <laughs> However, in that same vein, you can't use your big jumpy abilities with a sword. Because Kane couldn't use his jump unless he had a spear. Okay. That's my rationale. Okay. I mean, that, <laughs> that makes sense. Again, you can see the source of inspiration. It's definitely... Shining through, which again is, is something I do enjoy in a character as well. Yes, Kane is flat out my favorite Final Fantasy character ever in any of the Final Fantasy games. I am not entertaining commentary at this time. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're wrong. I will tell you what your favorite is. So like the fighter, there's no innate tool proficiencies here. I didn't really feel like there were any of the tools that really screamed out that that's something that they would have. I'm going to like the fighter, allow you to gain your tool proficiency from your background. That makes sense too, because I mean, let's face it, dragons are going to be a ton of work, even on the best of days. And this is something I was discussing with Ian earlier, you know, when he did have the dragon wormling as part of the class was as a DM, Working on this concept and trying to think, I was really going to work that Dragon Lee mechanic where it was going to be like having a toddler or a small puppy or something like that, where it was going to take a lot of checks and a lot of working because it is its own personality. It's not tamed. It's not necessarily bonded because it chose to like a ranger pet would be, but because they stole an egg and now it's just imprinted on them like a duck. But yet it's still a chromatic dragon, so it's going to have all of these innate desires and personality and things behind it anyway. And they are taking these efforts to train and try to mold these dragons to something else. That is a huge input in time. You're not really going to have time to train with tools. Yeah, and whenever you bring that up, it would have been a lot more like a toddler than a puppy because dragons are sentient right you know they're not just smart the way that dogs are smart they are smart the way that people are smart and depending on your take on dragons if you want to go with the straight traditional DD take dragons are substantially more intelligent than people yes because they are effectively immortal. They, I mean, they just continue to live until something decides that they don't. Give me a second here real quick. I'm actually going to take a second here and look up a Wormling stat block and see what their base intelligence is. Usually, I think somewhere in the neighborhood of 10 to 12. And it depends on the color, too. It does. Like a gold or a red or a green is going to have more intelligence than a white. Yeah, so a red here is showing a 12. Yeah, so that's... Slightly more intelligent than your average human being, just straight out the gate. That's actually considerably more. Yeah, I mean, in game, yes. Uh, one of the things that I've always held to was, and it was an old third edition thing, but it was trying to relate stats with real world. And one of the things that was fairly easy for me to glom onto was basically each point of intelligence is basically 10 IQ points. So basically, a red dragon wormling would be rocking about a, a 120 IQ, which would make them a, quote, gifted adult. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because you'd be one standard deviation above normal. Right. That is definitely something that played into my decision. The other one being 
the size of a dragon wormling because the wormling itself is usually a medium-sized creature. Right. And just the way I wanted to have it versus, you know, the way that it actually exists mechanically, they exactly. didn't mesh and, up. And that's the thing. Again, you had mentioned you wanted it more like a familiar than an actual beast. And so, yeah, you're starting to take up more space and things like that. So, absolutely. But anyway, that's why we don't have tool proficiencies. Too much work. <laughs> <laughs> Saving throw proficiencies, you get strength and dexterity, just like the fighter, mainly because of the way that the mechanics of the combat side of this class work. Wait, you're going to be a jumpy fighter, and you're going to have a dexterity saving throw? I know, right? Posturous. Skills, you get to choose two from acrobatics, animal handling, athletics, history, intimidation, nature, perception, and survival. Animal handling is, of course, a holdover from when they still had wormlings. I'm just going to leave it in case you wanted to rule for your home game that your Dragoon does have a wormling. I have someone in my home game who is actually playtesting a Dragoon for me, and she created it with the old rules where you had a wormling. So she is keeping her wormling, and periodically she has to make animal handling checks to determine how her wormling behaves. Awesome. Perfect. And then languages, you learn Draconic. Of course. So at first level, you end up getting a fighting style. The fighting styles we have are defense. So you get plus one AC when you're wearing armor. Dueling. So if you've got a melee weapon in one hand and no other weapons, you get a plus two to damage rolls with that weapon. That is going to play well for the green Dragoon archetype. And we'll get to that in a little bit. Great weapon fighting, of course. If you roll one or two on the damage die from an attack with a great weapon, you get to re-roll the damage on that die. Protection. So if you've got a shield and a creature you can see attacks a target other than you within five feet of you, you can use your reaction to impose disadvantage on the attack roll. And then I added one, a homebrewed one, called Polearm Fighting. So you gain a plus one bonus to attack and damage rolls when using a polearm that has the reach trait. So that's for if you're going to be fighting with a glaive or a halberd or a pike. I like those. That's actually a good fighting style, and it really ties in well with the Dragoon. If anything, I would make the polearm fighting something you get and actually parse back from the other fighting styles, potentially. Or, I don't know. I mean, you have pretty much all the fighting styles that a fighter would have listed, and that makes sense. The ones I see being used the most would either be protection, polearm fighting, possibly great weapon fighting, because again, you still have your polearm, so they're still a great weapon. I would definitely see either great weapon or polearm being the two most often used. Well, again, but the protection, and as we'll, we'll talk later, does tie in well with some of the archetypes also. Protection is, again, going to be more for the green. Because right. the green is going to be your more defensive spear and shield type uh, archetype. Yeah, but I wanted to leave those other ones in there in case somebody wanted to do something a little bit different with that. Okay. All right. So another thing that you get at first level is Draconic Leap. So basically, this is giving you a standing long jump of 20 feet and a standing high jump of 10 feet. The same as what the Bullywug gets as a Rachel ability. Ian and his frogs. He loves his frogs. <laughs> well, well, it was one of those things where I didn't realize that it was already a mechanical thing in 5th edition. I was trying to figure out the wording for it and trying to figure out how it was going to make it work. And then whenever I came across the Bullywug in the 5th edition monster manual, and that was just, this is the mechanical thing that they do. I was like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. We'll just bloop, drop that in here. Yeah, no, and it works out really well. I just like giving you bedtime because you really like your amphibian creatures. Bullywugs are cool, man. They are kind of cool. 
So your long jump will increase to 25 feet at 8th level and 30 feet at 15th level. And your high jump increases to 15 feet at 11th level. That's damned impressive. What's the, uh, like, I know we've got the Olympics coming up here pretty soon. They may have started by the time this broadcast, I'm not sure which. But I'm wondering what the average gold medal pole vaulting is. I think it's pretty close to that, isn't it? Pole vaulting is something entirely right. higher than that. Way higher than that. Is it, I thought it was like around 20, 25 feet. Well, I mean, the high jump is getting to 15 feet. At is it really? Level. No, I'm talking about in the, me- oh, in the, in mechanics, the mechanics of the okay. class. I was just thinking as in like a real world human. I mean, you think 15 feet, that's... I think the world record high jump is somewhere around 12 feet. I was going to say, because at 15 feet, you're, you're jumping higher than a standard one-story building. I take that back. That is not correct because Google has informed okay. me. The world record for the highest high jump is by Javier Sotomayor. Uh, 2.45 meters, which is eight feet, one quarter inch. Right. So, I mean, that's a great, I mean, I like it, especially as an 11th level character. You've got the Straconic influence. Again, as we've discussed before, fifth edition really is a superhero story. So a 15 foot high jump, that just feels good. Yeah. And it is a magically powered high jump. It's not like this is somebody who's just practicing every day and is naturally physically capable of doing it. Yeah, no, I like that. You know, they are getting their performance enhancing magic going on. They will not be allowed to (laughs) participate in the Olympics. (laughs) The IOC will not allow it. Magic doping? Magic doping, yes. And as part of this, you're also able to land from higher falls without taking damage. So the distance you can fall without taking fall damage is increased by five feet per point of your proficiency bonus. So you end up getting an extra 10 feet, meaning that you can fall 20 feet before you start taking fall damage at first level. And at 20th level, you can fall almost 50 feet, which is... 40 like, feet. Oh, it'd be you can 35, fall 40 feet. 35 no, plus 5? Because no, your proficiency six, is 7, right? 6 times 5 is 30 feet. Okay, I thought the proficiency bonus was 7 at 20. No, okay. 6. Okay, Plus yeah. 6 at 20th level. Yeah, then 40 feet, yeah. But again, that's impressive. I mean, it's hard to wrap your around around 40 feet until you see 40 feet, but that's... Well, I mean... <laughs> that's a good fall. Let's just compare that for a moment to what the monk gets. Because the monk gets something that's even crazier than that. A slow fall. You can use your reaction when you fall to reduce any falling damage you take by an amount equal to five times your monk level. So a 20th level monk can just drop 100 points of fall damage off. That's fall damage. Right. No, and again, no complaints. I was just, like I said, it's, it's neat. I just like... And again, when you start dealing with like how far you can jump or how much you can lift or the intelligence of creatures, I really, for my own sake, love putting a real world side by side so you kind of have an idea of what these characters are actually doing again it makes the characters more relatable for me definitely adds a lot of flavor text in my own mind as i'm playing on the table and the caveat that i have on this is you don't get the benefit of the extra fall range if you're incapacitated or unconscious or if you're falling as a result of a failed saving throw so if somebody stuns you and pushes you off a cliff you're still going to take your normal full fall damage because you can't catch yourself. Right, and that's totally acceptable. And because with the jumps, if you miss with the attack, and I'm going to get to that in a minute, actually, let's just go ahead and go into the Leaping Strike because that is the iconic ability that you get at first level. This is what a Dragoon do. This is what makes the Dragoon special. Yeah, so as an action, you can take a long jump, jumping up to your maximum height if able, and make a single weapon attack. If the attack hits you deal an additional 1d4 force damage 
per five feet you jump. You use either the height or the distance jump, whichever is greater. If your attack misses, you must succeed on a dexterity saving throw with the DC equal to five plus the height of the jump or take bludgeoning damage equal to half the distance fallen in feet. So you can tell that when Ian's coming up with this concept, one, he really liked Final Fantasy, and he was watching a lot of those Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, a lot of the uh, high-wire flying sword fighting movies from back in the early 2000s. So that I wanted to have it boiled in that if you miss, there is a consequence. Because you are jumping at superhuman ability. So if you botch it... It's going to hurt. Absolutely. Especially early on, whenever you're still theoretically learning your abilities as you're using them. And so whenever you use the ability, you have to end your jump within five feet of your target. And you can't use the ability if there is a hostile creature within five feet of you. So you can't use this ability to jump out of harm's way. And if you're up in somebody's face, you can't just jump up in the air and come back down on top of them. Right. Actually, do you have that in a mechanic? Is there a minimum range for your jump? I mean, I know you said you could jump up to your maximum height and all that. But, like, if you've got someone right on top of you, are you just going to, like, try to flat foot jump over them to the next guy? Leapfrog him or... You can jump over a creature, provided that you can see the creature that you're trying to hit beyond the creature you're jumping over. Okay. And you have enough clearance between that creature's head and the ceiling, if there's a ceiling. Gotcha. I'd almost want to add it to where, like, you can't start a jump attack if there's someone within five feet or maybe if someone takes an attack of opportunity then you do the attack with disadvantage i I literally just said you cannot use this ability if there's a hostile creature within five feet of you okay i missed that i apologize (laughs) i have the derp today of course you have to travel in a straight line from the point you're jumping from to your target in order to use the ability you can't go around corners or anything you can't curve your bullets you can't curve your bullets You get to do that later. Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You get to use magic to curve your bullets later. But as of right now, you can't do that yet. And you have to have a polearm equipped using both hands to use the ability. So you can't use it with a spear and a shield. You can't use it with a sword. You have to use a polearm equipped in both hands. So in pure Final Fantasy fashion, this is going to be a very flamboyant character. And again, almost like your... I almost get the same feel, again, as your swashbuckler robe. Again, you're going to have probably like the long flowy robes or a cloak or something like that. You're probably going to have long hair. You're going to have a bunch of streamers hanging off your polearm. Again, this is going to be a very showy display when you do it, which is kind of cool. Again, thematic can be fun at the table. All right. Moving along, next ability is called Valorous Defiance. This is playing into the whole audacity of the dragoon class the whole high risk high reward fighting style that you get with the dragoon and this is also i took second wind out and i took action surge out this is to sort of replace second wind in something that fits a little bit more thematically so starting at second level you learn to harness your adrenaline when charging into dangerous situations. When you make a leaping strike or a dragoon charge attack against a creature and there are no allies within 10 feet of you when you land, you gain temporary hit points equal to 1d10 plus your dragoon level. Once you use this ability, you can't use it again until you finish a short or long rest. 
So that gives you a little bit more padding whenever you're charging in by yourself to help offset a little bit of your squish from being in light armor in melee. Yeah, that makes sense. Again, if you're jumping into, you know, a whole patch of goblins or, or kobolds or something like that, those little knives start adding up really fast if they hit. So I, I kind of oh, yeah. like this. One thing you don't have listed on this, though, is how long do your temporary hit points last? They last until you finish a short or long rest. Okay, because I know some things that give yeah, you, like, I, they last I for, will... like, an hour or, like, five minutes. Or I know, I know a lot of temporary hit points has a set time. Right. And you're right, I do need to add that in. The thought is that you're charging into the thick of it. Those temporary hit points are probably going to be gone before the fight is done. Probably. Not guaranteed, so I do need to add that duration in. All right, so at third level, you get to choose your archetype. As I was saying, this was originally tied to the ongoing war in my world between the chromatic and metallic dragons, and you were going to imprint to a chromatic wormling. So there are five archetypes, and each one is tied to one of the five chromatic dragon colors. So you got black, blue, green, red, and white. I like this a lot, and this is really where the dragoon starts taking shape for me. As I said before, a specific pole arm skirmishing fighter is fairly inspired. You don't see that a whole lot in D&D just by itself. That's great. But now you start being able to kind of flavor and customize your character. I really, really like this aspect of the character. It's a lot of fun. For me, some of my favorite games, looking at you, Blizzard, and WoW, really broke the games as they parsed back the amount that you could individualize your character. So this was thrown in, and this gives you a lot of options. So your subclasses have subclasses almost. I really like that a lot. It's a fun option. So that way, everything doesn't feel the same. So on top of that, the color that you pick is going to determine a damage type for what I'm calling chromatic affinity, which is the other ability that you get at third level. So the color of your dragon determines the damage type of your chromatic affinity. So you get your first rank of chromatic affinity for free at third level. And whenever you level up and get an ability score improvement, you can choose to spend it to buy another rank of your chromatic affinity instead of improving an attribute or buying a feat. So what Chromatic Affinity does is it gives you an ability called Draconic Shout. So you can choose either a 30-foot line or a 15-foot cone. Everything in the area of effect has to make a dexterity saving throw or take 2d6 damage of your affinity type or 1d6 thunder damage, your choice. You have to choose that whenever you do it, and everything in the area of effect takes the same damage type. So Friendly Fire is an option, boys and girls. Be careful. Yes, Friendly Fire is an option. I like this. That Draconic Affinity is kind of expensive, but again, adds a good bit to the character. So it's not something you're like, oh, I'm absolutely taking this. It does make it something you do want to consider. And it's really powerful for what you get. Right. Now, the name of it, and I brought this up before, not my favorite. Still can't think of anything much better. I really need to ponder that because, I don't know, Draconic Sout just sounds too Skyrim-y for me personally. But again, it, it is what it is. So I can't really, like I said, I don't have anything better for it. I mean, it is a shout that emulates your affinity dragon's breath weapon. Yes. That is purely what it is. And that's why it's called Draconic Shout. So, yeah. No, again, I totally get it. I understand the reasoning behind it. I like how it works. It's one of those things where it's slightly off center. It's like when that picture frame is just a little bit off level and you just can't help but to stare at it and you want to fix it, but you don't know that you can. <laughs> that's kind of where I'm at with that. And so whenever you buy additional ranks in your chromatic affinity, the base damage for your shout increases by 2d6 for your elemental side and 1d6 for your thunder side as you progress. So the higher your rank, the more damage your shout does. 
and you can shout once per short to long rest. It functions the same way that the Dragonborn's natural breath weapon does, which is you can use it once per short to long rest. And again, looking at the two, that makes perfect sense as this class has are trying to literally bond emotionally or metaphysically with a dragon so they can make it chromatic or make it metallic versus chromatic. The Dragonborn obviously have draconic heritage. And so I like that those lines are starting to blur a little bit. It almost reminds me of in third edition, you had what was the name of the class? It was a subclass, a Red Dragon Disciple, there we go, that bards and sorcerers had draconic blood, and so they started developing these draconic traits, kind of along those same lines, which I really enjoy. Yeah. So in addition to getting the extra damage, whenever you buy another rank of chromatic affinity, you also get another little cherry on top. So at rank two, whenever you use your leaping strike or dragoon charge ability, you can use your bonus action to add 1d6 damage of your elemental type per rank to the attack. Because you don't really have a whole lot that you get to use your bonus action for as a Dragoon. If you hit, you can just blow your bonus action to attack this damage on the same way that a Paladin would attach a Smite with a spell slot. And it's specifically with the Leaping Strike or Dragoon Charge, so you can't do this on just a basic melee attack. Rank 3, the damage die for your Shout increases from a D6 to a D8. So your damage ends up becoming D8s instead of D6s. I like it. Starting at rank three, you get 6D8 for your elemental or 3D8 for your thunder, which I think puts it on par with Thunder Wave, which is a second level spell. Okay. At rank four, you get to choose either your Leaping Strike or your Dragoon Charge. And whenever you hit with it, you get 2D6 elemental damage per rank of affinity as opposed to 1d6. So this allows you to specialize depending on whether you're using your Leaping Strike or your Dragoon Charge more often. So this would basically give you an extra 8d6 at rank 4. and So that would be the 16th level? Well, because I'm adding the extra ASIs in that the fighter gets, okay. theoretically you could get that at 12th level if you didn't improve any of your actual attributes and you didn't buy any feats. Right. So that was what I was going to bring up is that does seem like a lot, but then again, you're not getting any feats in that fourth level. You've given up pretty much eight ability score points, which is a lot, a lot of ability score points. Yes. So again, this does wind up working out. And that's why I went with the fighter spread for ASIs. Yeah. Because... Otherwise, you get five ASIs, and then you would be expected to spend four of them to max out your chromatic affinity, and that gives you one left over to actually buy a feat or improve your ability scores or any of that. So by leaving three left over, if you buy all four, that gives you a little bit more wiggle room, a little bit more incentive to look at other stuff. Yes. And then at rank five, when you deal elemental damage as a bonus action after hitting a creature with your Leaping Strike or Dragoon Charge, you get to choose one or the other, probably the same one that you chose at rank four, because that's the one that you're going to be using. You also deal half of that damage to all other creatures within 10 feet, except yourself. These creatures can make a dexterity saving throw to take no damage. So I like this again, Friendly Fire is a thing, which it seems like... I don't know, Wizards tried to back a little bit away from some Friendly Fire stuff in in 5th edition. So again, I like that, you know, you're not going to use this ability if, like, your party's swarming something and you're going to jump it on top of it. So you do have to be mindful of where everybody on the table is. So anytime you have to consider your surroundings and stuff like that, I think that's generally a good option for a character class. So yeah, great. Yeah, and I actually wanted rank 5 
to have a little bit of a drawback to make people second guess whether or not they wanted it. Because then you look at, okay, do I want to buy up to rank five of my chromatic affinity and have three ASIs left over to improve my attributes or to buy feats? Or do I want to just stop at rank four, not get that extra 2d8 damage on my shout and have an extra ASI to use for a feat or an ability score. Yeah, because I mean, really, if you got that fifth one, you get the extra 2d8 for your shout, and then you also would get an extra 2d6 on your attacks, too, from fourth rank. Right. So, yeah, that's But this doesn't give you the option of whether or not you're going to splash damage. Exactly. If you use your bonus action to throw elemental damage, it is going to splash. Just like Shamu. There is no option... You know, it's all or nothing. Right. And so I like that. That is a good extra cost to put into for consideration. Because like I said, that does ramp up really fast. All right. So as I've already mentioned, ASIs were following the standard fighter pattern of 4, 6, 8, 12, 14, 16, 19. Perfect. At 5th level, you get your extra attack. So you can attack twice per turn using the attack action. Instead of doing the fighter thing where you get a 3rd one at 11th level and a 4th one at 20th level, I... Altered that a little bit where you get a third one at 15th level and that's it. Because they are a martial class, they are getting in and fighting. And so this also adds an element of, do I want to attack this guy three times? Or do I want to use my special ability and only get one attack, but potentially deal a whole lot more damage? Right. So again, that's great too. And going back to something we've talked about a lot, we haven't talked about in a while, but the difference between a wide board and a tall board. So this gives you options for both. If you've got that big baddie that you just need to hammer and take out real fast, that's an option. If you're getting swarmed by a bunch of smaller monsters, this also gives you an option for that. So it does make the character very versatile. Yeah. Right. Next ability is Dragoon Charge. And I've mentioned this a couple of times because I had to include it in abilities that you got before this one because those abilities are going to affect this one. So starting at ninth level, you get to use your action to perform a Dragoon Charge, which is basically you're taking your tall jump and you're making it horizontal. So you're just jumping straight forward. So you can dash forward in a straight line and make a single melee attack against a target creature attempting to hit them with extra oomph. This is pretty much your Falcon Punch from Smash Brothers. (laughs) Yes. This is what the Flash does. Yes, absolutely. So... The maximum distance you can travel is 10 feet plus 5 feet per point of strength modifier with a minimum of your standing long jump distance. So at this level, your minimum max range, if that makes any sense, is 25 feet because that is what your standing long jump distance is. Okay. Because you get that first improvement at level 8 and you get this at level 9. So you can automatically jump out to 25 feet regardless of your strength modifier. But if you have a higher strength mod, you can jump further than that. The minimum distance that you have to go in order to use it is 10 feet. So you have to get at least 10 feet of distance with your charge in order to be able to use it. And I like that. That makes sense. The same as, you know, the charger feet. So in order to get the advantages of the charger feet, you have to be able to move at least 10 feet towards the target that you're going to attack before you attack it. you got to build up some momentum. Yes. (laughs) So you cannot use this ability if an object more than two and a half feet tall or a small or larger creature is in the path of the charge. So you have to have a clear path to charge through. Okay. Otherwise you're tripping on a kobold. Yeah, pretty much. So if you hit the target at the end with your attack, it takes an extra 2d4 force damage 
per five feet you traveled. So this could get pretty big if you have the opportunity to cover a lot of ground early on. But once you've closed the distance, you're not going to get that bonus again for a while. And if you miss, then you have to make a dex save 12 plus one per five feet traveled or take bludgeoning damage equal to half the distance trap in feet and land prone in the space where you were going to land. And if that happens, you provoke an attack of opportunity from your target. Okay. So it is a bigger risk, bigger reward than leaping strike because it deals twice as much force damage on a hit. But if you miss and you fail your saving throw, then you're prone and they get to attack you with an attack of opportunity, which will be at advantage because you're prone. Exactly. Everyone's going to ruffle stomp you at that point. Yeah. (laughs) That's the Simpsons. (laughs) Exactly. And you can use this ability to cross difficult terrain or open spaces such as pits or chasms with no penalty, provided that the space that you're landing in on the other side is not difficult terrain and that there's no more than five feet of height difference between your start and your endpoints. So that's that. At 11th level, get Scale of the Coiled Dragon. So at 11th level, you get advantage on your deck saves when you miss with a Leaping Strike or Dragoon Charge. You know, you've been doing this for a while. You get to a point where it's easier for you to catch yourself without splatting if you miss. And again, that's perfectly reasonable. And the damage that you take from failing the saving throws or for falling is half. So you take half damage from falling. Okay. Starting at 13th level, Draconic Grace. This is where you don't have to travel in a straight line to use your Leaping Strike or Dragoon Charge anymore. And it also lets you use your Leaping Strike to attack a flying creature. So as long as the creature is within range of your high jump height plus reach. So at this point, at level 13, it would be 15 feet plus your reach. So either 20 or 25 feet. So if you can get... A flying creature that is within 20 or 25 feet of the ground, you can use your leaping strike to jump up and attack it. I like that. That just plays into the whole, they're being trained to fight dragons, and dragons fly. So they need to be able to hit the dragon while it's flying. And then the last class ability is Draconic Cleave. So starting at 18th level, if you reduce a creature to zero hit points with a leaping strike or dragoon charge... You may immediately target another creature within 20 feet of you for a second attack using the same ability. The second attack deals bonus damage as if you had traveled 10 feet, regardless of distance traveled, and can be used against creatures within 10 feet of you. All right, so that should be within 5 feet of you because you normally you can't use Leaping Strike if there's something within 5 feet of you. And I mean, at 18th level, that seems reasonable. Yes. All right, so that's all the base stuff. It's been a while getting here, but that's all the base stuff. Now... Do you want to hear my suggestion now, or do you want to hear it at the end of everything? Because like I said, I think I may have figured out a weird way we can get the dragon with you. And I may have also found the answer to the draconic shout question I have been having. So, again, this would be up to you, and we'd have to balance out the mechanics. But instead of draconic shout, call it draconic projection. And with that, you can either use it like the breath weapon, or you can summon a spiritual essence of your dragon with hit points equal to what your draconic would be. So like your 2d6 or whatever. And that would act like a wizard or a sorcerer's familiar that could attack 1d4 of its affinity type. So like a red dragon would use fire damage on a touch, acid, poison, lightning. But this way you could choose to either use it as a breath weapon, line out, go, or you could summon the essence of your dragon from wherever it is. And it would follow you around as a familiar with a low hit point pool 
still able to do some damage. I'm not really not sure because I don't want to have another body on the board. Okay. If that makes sense. That does make sense. That was my main complaint with how I was doing it before because I didn't want to have another thing in initiative order. Gotcha. Okay. I didn't want another body on the board. I didn't want to affect the action economy with the dragon. Or you could use your, any command you gave the essence would be your bonus action. And it would be like the cleric spiritual weapon. But then there would be just like a ranger pet. And I didn't want them to be ranger pets. Okay, that's perfectly Okay, that works. I mean, it's a good idea, but I've already considered that and... Okay, I wasn't sure if you'd considered that or not. Okay. All right, so going into the archetypes. First one is the black. Black dragons are swamp-dwelling dragons. They are ambush predators. And so the black dragoon is very ambush sort of class. They draw a lot of parallels with the rogue on a combat side, particularly the assassin rogue. They don't do those things as well as the assassin rogue, but it is pulled in as part of the archetype. So starting off, you get one ability at third level when you take it, and then the rest of them are at 7, 11, 17, and 20. So with the black starting at third level, you gain proficiency with stealth and get the ability to hide or disengage as a bonus action. And then with all the different Dragoon types, uh, you are unaffected by difficult terrain in the environment that your dragon would be native to. So Black Dragoons are unaffected by natural difficult terrain caused by swamps or similar environments. Moving on to level 7, if you start your turn successfully hidden, you get to deal an additional d6 of damage of your weapon's type whenever you hit a creature with your Leaping Strike or Dragoon Charge, and it is increased by 1d6 per rank of Chromatic Affinity you have. So it would top out at an extra 6d6 bonus damage. That's hitting hard. I like it. <laughs> well, as opposed to the Rogue that gets 10d6... On the sneak attack. On their sneak attack. Yeah, no. I, it, I'm not they, they can get every single round if they're... Right, no, I am not complaining. I am liking how that sounds. That would be very satisfying to land. Absolutely. At 11th level, Ambush Predator, you gain resistance to acid damage and a swim speed equal to your movement speed. While traveling through swamps or other similar environments, you can extend your ability to ignore natural difficult terrain to all creatures of your choice within 20 feet of you. And that ability is tacked onto the 11th level ability for all of them for their preferred environment. Just a little something to help with the exploration pillar of D&D so that if you're having to hunt down this black dragon or you're having to hunt down some Yanti in the swamp, the black dragoon is going to be able to emanate this 20-foot aura that says, okay, as long as you're staying within 20 feet of me, you're not affected by the difficult terrain here. It makes it very easy to get through the swamp that way. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. At 17th level, you get Marine. So if you're hidden or underwater, when you start your Leaping Strike or Dragoon Charge, the attack is treated as a critical hit if you hit your target. Just go ahead and name it what you really meant. Let's just go ahead and call it Frogman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Once you use this ability, you can't use it again to finish a short or long rest. This is akin to the Assassinate ability of the Assassin Rogue, where if you attack somebody with a sneak attack and they haven't gone yet, then it's an automatic critical. And then at 20th level, Master Saboteur, whenever a creature fails their dexterity saving throw against your Draconic Shout, their AC is reduced by one per rank you have in Chromatic Affinity for one minute. Creatures with resistance to acid may take a constitution saving throw to avoid this reduction, and creatures that are immune to acid damage are unaffected. I love this. I love the being able to break armor down. That's really something that's been left out in this edition. Yeah, and you know, if you've taken the time to buy all five ranks, that 
minus five to AC against a creature at 20th level is going to be huge. I mean, that's knocking a 22, 23 AC down to a 17, 18 AC. Yeah, that is absolutely huge. You're adding an extra 25% hit chance on top of this, mechanically speaking. So yeah, that's what the black does. It is a very hit and run kind of archetype, taking a little bit more from the being able to hide and take the enemy unawares. They're not going to be very flashy. They're going to be very no-nonsense. Get in, get the job done, get out. Yeah, so these are, instead of like, you know, your big swashbuckler, this is going to be like your ninja type again. It's This is your assassin rogue. Yeah, and I would say it's less hit and run and more hit and disable. Your hits are definitely going to take the wind out of a lot of sails, and so they're not going to be able to react near as quick or as fast. You're not necessarily trying to disengage at this point because you have taken a huge chunk of the armor or you've just laid a huge single hit on them. So you're less about that in and out and more just kind of like one shot and they're on the ground. Yeah, but you also get that ability to disengage as a bonus action. That is true, yes. If you need it. So if you really wallop somebody and it doesn't take them down, you get the ability to... Just kidding. Step back. (laughs) Bonus action, disengage, step 10 feet back. Oh, wait, I thought you were somebody else. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to sock you like that. (laughs) Yeah. So moving on to the next one, the blues. So blue dragons are native to the desert. They are lightning affinity. Uh, Blue dragons are best dragons. No, I will not be entertaining commentary at this time. (laughs) When I was reading this, I was honestly looking to see if you were going to overstack the blues, and you didn't. So I was quite proud of you for that. That is because I nerfed them about three times before I sent you this document. (laughs) Because I was very conscious of that. So starting off Sapphire Scales at third level, your affinity type is lightning. Starting at third level, you gain proficiency with acrobatics. And your movement speed is increased by five feet while wearing light or no armor. And you are also unaffected by natural difficult terrain while traveling through deserts or similar environments. At seventh level, you get jumper. So you add an additional five feet of distance to your long and high jumps. That's it. But because the blues do focus very heavily on their leaping strike, that's extra damage. Yeah, I was going to say, those are going to stack with some of your abilities real fast. So, I mean, it doesn't need to be a lot because that gives you some extra dice on your attack rolls. So that's perfectly fine. Yeah, and blue dragoons are a cavalry equivalent. They are designed to be very mobile to get in and hit hard and get out without a whole lot of risk to themselves. That is the feel that I'm going for with the blues. So at 11th level, you get Stormcaller. You gain resistance to lightning damage. And when you make a melee attack against a creature, that creature cannot make attacks of opportunity against you until the start of your next turn. And then, of course, the emanating your immunity to difficult terrain in deserts, 20 feet. Quicksand will not bother you. Well, most of your quicksand's in the swamp, so... I suppose. Quicksand is usually a result of super saturated right. sand. So. But anyway, moving on. 17th level, you get Stormbringer. Uh, you get an additional 5 feet of movement while wearing light or no armor. And whenever you make a leaping strike, you may reduce your AC by an amount up to your dexterity modifier and increase your attack roll by an equal amount. If the attack hits, the damage die for your leaping strike's force damage is increased from a D4 to a D6. And this penalty lasts until the start of your next turn. So kind of a similar mechanic to the reckless attacks that a barbarian gets. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, absolutely. But instead of advantage, you're taking your dexterity bonus away from your AC and adding it to your attack roll. Right. There was a feat in third and 3.5 that was similar, except you would take points off of your two hit. 
I think it was called powerful strikes. And then you'd add it to your damage. So like you could take up the yeah, power attack. Yeah, power attack. That's right. Yeah. And then at 20th level, you get Harbinger of the Tempest. So whenever a creature fails their dex save against your Draconic Shout, they are stunned until the end of your next turn. Creatures with resistance to lightning damage make a constitution save to resist the stun. And creatures that are immune to lightning damage are unaffected. That just feels good. This is the only one of the 20th level abilities across any of the Dragoons that doesn't have a one minute duration because stuns in and of themselves are broken. (laughs) Anyone who happened to listen to Critical Role's Vox Machina versus Mighty Nine one shot that they did at the end of campaign two will know exactly what I'm saying when I say that stuns are broken. I have not got that far yet. I'm trying to finish the Mighty Nine before I listen to that. It was a whole lot of fun to listen to. But yeah, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about whenever you get there. Okay. So that takes care of the blues. Next one in the list is the greens. The greens are your defensive tanky dragoons. They're the ones that are going to have a more defensive, less in-your-face, less powerful offensive side but they're going to be able to soak more hits. So starting at third level with Emerald Scales, your affinity type is Poison. And starting at third level, you gain proficiency with Medium Armor and Constitution Saving Throws. That by itself a lot. Yeah. yeah. Like I said, they're tanky, they're beefy, and they're unaffected by forests, difficult terrain, because green dragons naturally inhabit forests. Level seven, Stalwart. You gain a second reaction per round. You can only use this reaction to make an attack of opportunity. Um, You also gain the ability to make leaping strikes and dragoon charges while using a shield and spear. So that way you get to have that AC bonus from your shield and still get to do all of your jumpy, bouncy stuff that a dragoon do. I like it. At level 11, you get defender. So you gain resistance to poison and advantage on saving throws against the poison condition as every other poison resistance class and racial ability happens to be. Whenever you're the target of a spell or ability that targets multiple allies and deals damage, you may use your reaction and choose to fail your saving throw to have the ability automatically hit you, allowing all of your allies to automatically succeed on their saving throw. Once you use this ability, you can't use it again to finish a short or long rest. This is a callback to an ability that was in 4th edition. I can't remember what it's called, but basically where... If you're in a fireball, you can choose to soak that fireball and none of your friends take damage. That's an awesome ability. Holy crap. Yeah, I think it was an ability that was part of the Justicier Prestige class. Okay. And then, of course, you get the 20-foot radius, ignore difficult terrain and forests. At 17th level, you get Protector. So whenever an ally within 20 feet of you is targeted by a melee attack, you may use your reaction to make a Dragoon charge against the attacking creature. If your attack hits, the target becomes stunned until the end of their turn. So you're basically saying, no more turn for you. Your turn is over. Good day, sir. It is my turn now. (laughs) And if your attack misses, then the creature's attack is made with disadvantage. So it's basically an improved protection fighting style. I like it. It's almost like an interrupt in WoW, which is a nice thing to have, really. It's like the intercept ability that the warrior has. I like it. And then at 20th level, you get Relentless. So whenever a creature fails its dexterity saving throw against your Draconic Shout, it becomes poisoned. While poisoned, it takes 1d6 poison damage per rank of Chromatic Affinity at the beginning of each of its turns, lasts for one minute, and it can make a constitution save at the end of each of its turns 
ending the poisoned effect on a success. Okay. I mean, that rounds out. I like the greens. I mean, my personal, you know, affinity would probably be a green or black dragon. Personally, I really do like how these greens fleshed out, though, that, that they feel really good. Yeah, and the player who is playtesting this in my home game, she is playing a green dragoon who also happens to be a green dragonborn. All right, moving on to reds. The reds are the big, bad, mean chromatic dragons. They are the biggest, baddest, meanest of the chromatic dragons. They're the famous ones everybody knows. Yes. <laughs> and so the red dragoons are the officers. They're the officer corps because red dragons are more powerful. So you're less likely to get red dragon eggs because they're harder to come by. And so because they are a more powerful dragon in and of themselves, they are given to the more powerful, more capable dragoons in the order. So they're part of the command structure. So at third level, you get ruby scales. Your affinity type is fire. You gain proficiency with the intimidation skill and may choose to use your strength attribute instead of your charisma when making intimidation skill checks. And you also are unaffected by natural terrain in mountains. Okay. At seventh level is sergeant. You can use your reaction to give an ally within five feet of you advantage on their next melee attack roll. All right. At 11th level is Lieutenant. You gain resistance to fire. And when you use your Draconic Shout ability, all creatures of your choice who can see and hear you within 30 feet must succeed on a wisdom saving throw or become frightened of you for one minute. Any creatures within the area of effect of your Draconic Shout make this save with disadvantage. Plus the 20-foot aura ignore difficult terrain in mountains. Sounds reasonable. <laughs> yeah. 17th level is Captain. You gain an additional 5 feet of reach with all of your polearm weapon attacks out to a maximum of 15 feet. That's fairly impressive. I like that. covers a lot of map. That does cover a lot of map. You throw a Sentinel on that. Oh, yeah. Sentinel and Polearm Master, where you can make your attack whenever they enter your threatened range. And then, you know, you reduce their movement to zero if you hit them. Yeah. Yeah, that is lockdown territory right there, sir. And because you get that at 17th level, by that point, you've earned the right to lock down the field. Absolutely. And then at 20th level is Spear Commander. So when a creature fails its dex save against your Draconic Shout, it becomes frightened of you and set on fire for one minute. Toasty. So this is, if you fail your saving throw against the Shout, you just automatically become frightened. No save. If you succeed, you take half damage, and then you have to make the wisdom save to see if you become afraid (laughs) at disadvantage. But you're not set on fire. Well, you know, that's always a plus. So creatures frightened by your draconic shout must use the dash action to move as far away from you as possible on their turns, or the dodge action if they cannot move away from you. At the beginning of each of its turns, the creature takes 1d6 fire damage per rank of chromatic affinity. The creature may make a wisdom saving throw at the end of its turn if it cannot see you to end the friend condition. And the flames can be extinguished if the creature or another creature within five feet of it uses its action to put out the flames. So it's fear that is specifically patterned after the turn undead. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't know if you did this with this in mind, but this red dragon, it feels quite a bit like our bugbear cleric we made when we did our first showcase. Yes. Which I love that character. So this red dragon has a lot of that feel where you kind of come in, you're commanding, you're affecting initiative orders and things like that. This would be a lot of fun on the table. Yeah. It was a hobgoblin. Yes, that's what it was. Hobgoblin, not bugbear. That's all right. It's been a hot minute since we've looked at that. Almost a full year. Almost. Yeah, we're going to have to get on that. (laughs) (laughs) And then the last of the Dragoon archetypes are the Whites. 
white dragons are the smallest of the chromatic dragons. They're the most bestial. They've got the lowest intelligence score and they're the most likely to act in a very primal, very savage manner. So the white dragoon has a lot of a barbarian feel to it, throwing in that extra oomph on all of their hits, making them very brutal, very vicious. So starting at third level, your affinity type is cold. You gain proficiency with athletics and you get to add your proficiency bonus to damage rolls made with two-handed pole arms. So we're just doubling down on using these pole arms for the Dragoon, making sure that we are taking full advantage of that proclivity that the Dragoons have. Right. And then they're also unaffected by natural difficult terrain and snow and ice. At seventh level, you get Rager. So whenever you hit a creature with a melee weapon attack using a two-handed polearm, you gain resistance to non-magical bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing damage until the start of your next turn. I like that. So yeah, that's playing into the rage mechanic that barbarians have where they take half damage from non-magical sources while they're raging. Right. Now this is definitely the type where you would jump into a middle of a giant melee of some sort of nothing. You're just like, okay. Oh yes, this is where you jump in and... A target-rich environment, as they call it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you leap into the target-rich environment and lay about you with abandon (laughs) and vigor. At 11th level, you get Juggernaut. So you gain resistance to cold damage. And when you use your Dragoon Charge ability, you may charge through a number of occupied spaces equal to your strength modifier between your starting location and your target. Each creature whose space you pass through must succeed on a dexterity saving throw or take bludgeoning damage equal to your strength modifier plus your proficiency bonus. I have to say it. Holy shit balls! <laughs> this is letting you let out your inner ludicrous. <laughs> get out the way. That's as far as we can go for copyright issues. Yes. And additionally, you get your 20 foot radius, ignore difficult terrain and snow and ice. At 17th level, you get Frostbringer. So when you use your Dragoon Charge ability, you can take a penalty to your AC up to your Dex mod to add that much to your attack roll. And if it hits, the force damage from your Dragoon Charge increases from a D4 to a D6. And the AC penalty lasts until the start of your next turn. So at 17th level, you get Frostbringer. So when you make a Dragoon Charge, you can take a penalty to your AC up to your Dex modifier and add that much to your attack roll. And if the attack hits, the damage die on your force damage for your Dragoon charge increases from D4s to D6s. And the penalty to your AC lasts until the start of your next turn. This is the equivalent of the leaping strike bonus that the blue Dragoon gets, just with the other ability with the Dragoon charge, because I wanted the whites to take full advantage of this charge ability, this ability to just, you know, dash through everything. You know, there's not a lot of flash and show to this. This is a very brutal, very in-your-face sort of thing. Yeah, I like it. It's not complex. I'm just going to come and swing in, and it's going to be done when I'm done. Yeah. (laughs) And then at 20th level, you get Master of the Frozen North. So when a creature fails its deck save against your Draconic Shout, it becomes restrained by a block of ice, which materializes around its leg. The ice lasts for one minute and has 20 hit points, an AC of 10, is immune to poison and psychic damage, and vulnerable to fire and bludgeoning damage. It's an ice cube. You're putting an ice cube around their feet, They can't go anywhere until the ice cube's gone. (laughs) Frost Nova. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, that's basically what it is. That is basically what it is. So yeah, that's them. Because that will give them the opportunity to lock down an opponent. They have to spend their turn trying to break themselves out. So at 17th level, you get Frostbringer. So when you make a Dragoon charge, 
you can take a penalty to your AC up to your dex modifier and add that much to your attack roll. And if the attack hits, the damage die on your force damage for your Dragoon charge increases from D4s to D6s. And the penalty to your AC lasts until the start of your next turn. This is the equivalent of the Leaping Strike bonus that the blue Dragoon gets, just with the other ability with the Dragoon charge, because I wanted the whites to take full advantage of this charge ability, this ability to just dash through everything. You know, there's not a lot of flash and show to this. This is a very brutal, very in-your-face sort of thing. Yeah, I like it. It's not complex. I'm just going to come and swing in and it's going to be done when I'm done. Yeah. (laughs) And then at 20th level, you get Master of the Frozen North. So when a creature fails its deck save against your Draconic Shout, it becomes restrained by a block of ice, which materializes around its legs. The ice lasts for one minute and has 20 hit points, an AC of 10, is immune to poison and psychic damage, and vulnerable to fire and bludgeoning damage. You know, it's an ice cube. You're putting an ice cube around their feet. They can't go anywhere until the ice cube's gone. (laughs) Frost Nova. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, that's basically what it is. <laughs> that is basically what it is. So yeah, that's them. Because that will give them the opportunity to lock down an opponent. They have to spend their turn trying to break themselves out. 20 hit points, even at 20th level, can be two or three attacks in order to get that out. Yeah, I mean, depending on what they're swinging with, yeah, absolutely. So you do get them locked down and focused on something else for a turn, or they choose to ignore the fact that they're immobilized, and then you get the advantage of they're restrained, which means that attacks against them are made with advantage, and they automatically fail dex saves while they're restrained. Right. Now this ice block, real quick, just to specify, is it just around their feet or is it around their entire body? Just around their feet. Okay. So like if they had a wizard, that would not affect their somatic components. Well, I think while you're restrained, you still make attacks with disadvantage. Um, Let me just double check. Restrained. Yes. Attack rolls against the creature have advantage and the creature's attack rolls have disadvantage. Right, but what I was wondering is, like, if you have a sorcerer or a wizard or a cleric and they have somatic components, would that affect their spellcasting ability? If it is a spell that has a spell attack roll. Okay. I mean, if it's something... Just on the spell attack roll. Oh, sorry. If it's something that requires a save, no. Okay, I was wondering if they were frozen enough that it would limit their somatic ability or you have to make a gesture. Because a lot of spells, if you're bound, you can't cast spells because somatic component. So I wasn't sure if your ice block would affect that or not. That would be something that would be a DM call. Okay. If they are restrained, which they are, then I would see that pretty solid argument for that. Okay. Because, I mean, you could lock down a caster real easy with that then, which, again, is kind of a great thing to have, particularly for that class. Of... Yeah, and, you know, you can do this in a 15-foot cone or a 30-foot line. So you can potentially get a whole bunch of people in a 15-foot oh, cone. absolutely. 30-foot line is a little bit less likely, but, I mean, you can still line it up to where you can get a decent application. Yeah, if you can catch a bunch of people like in a choke point or something like that, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Have them standing in a doorway with a hallway in front of them. Just take a ticket, please, and have them all line up for you. (laughs) Or even if they're just crowding in and you just cone it. Yeah. Because now you have all of these restrained individuals right in front of the door. So the people behind them are going to have a whole lot of trouble trying to get through to you. Yeah, that's where you have your artificer drop a couple, you know, alchemic blast potions. (laughs) Or, you know, thunder wave or... Another cone breath weapon, since they're all frozen. Cone of cold. Let's just throw a cone of cold out there because... Well, that's what I'm saying. If you use that and then you have a black dragon dragoon, you know, lined up or even a red. Oh, yeah, because 
you know, they any, can't any, move. any of the any of the other dragoons, if you had another dragoon to use their shout, right? Because they're all going to be on disadvantage because they're all restrained. They would automatically fail their dexterity saving throw. Yeah. So the other dragoon's ability would automatically apply. Right. That's kind of where I was going with that. Yeah. So I that, wouldn't want to use it with a red because the fire would melt the ice. Melt the ice. But then they would be afraid and they would have to run away from you. So right. six of one, half a dozen the other. Yeah. Plus the fire damage, you know, as it lingers would be good. But like I said, what I was really thinking is the black. So you get everybody frozen up in one chunk. You hit them with the black. So now their ACL drops by five. Yeah. And then you just go in and you start wailing and you just mow them right over. And then at that point, that's whenever you come in with the blue and stun everybody for a round. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and just get... So what we need is a party of dragoons. <laughs> yes, yes, that is exactly what we need. And one cleric. Now, that's why they make potions of healing. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> so that's the class. That is the class and all of its archetypes. I really like how this has evolved over time. I think this has a lot of potential. It feels very well thought out. It feels balanced. I don't see anything glaring where it's like, ah, that's too much or that's not enough. I'm really liking how this one turned out. Yeah, I'm, I'm really happy with the way that it has matured. Because I, I went back and I looked at version one, which was the 3.5 edition one before I ported it over to fifth edition. And dear Lord, that thing was a giant clustered mess. <laughs> and that's something that I've learned the more that I do this is learning how to how to kill my babies. Yeah, I have all of these cool ideas that I really want to do. And I'm like, OK, this is all cool, but I can only have three of them. And there's eight of them. Right. So I need to figure out which five of them need to go. That's a thing. And from a creative writer standpoint or any kind of thing like that, that is also something if you don't get a pressing deadline is always something really good to do is finish what you're doing and then stick it in a cool, dry place and let it mature for a month and then come back and look at it with fresh eyes. Yes. Absolutely. And that way you can kind of go through and see, because you will get hung up on an ability or an idea and you'll just fall in love with it. And again, a week later, it might not be the same thing. So if you can kind of disengage yourself from the project for a little while, you can look at it objectively. And that's always a really hard thing to do for any creator. So again, taking that small break is a huge tool to have. Yeah, and this one in particular, between my most recent revision, which was a couple of weeks before we recorded this podcast, and the previous revision was about 18 months because one of my players in my home group is playing a Dragoon, and so I had to have it for her. But we missed 16 months because of the pandemic. Right. And so whenever we came back, that's whenever I decided to come back to it. And so... All that time away from it gave me that distance that I needed to be able to make the hard calls and to kill my darlings and to, you know, really pare it down to work better. Right. Yeah, but that's about it. So thank you, everyone, for listening today. I hope you enjoyed this class. If you have any comments or suggestions or ideas for future episodes, please send us an email at undercommontaste at gmail.com or send us a direct message through our Twitter account at UCT Homebrew. I'm still doing our Shakespeare and Insult page a day calendar inspired RP prompts six days a week. They're going up on the Twitter account and then getting cross posted to the Facebook and Instagram accounts at Undercommon Taste. We're also on Patreon, patreon.com slash Undercommon Taste. If you want to help support the show financially, we would really appreciate you going over there and checking that out. 
And you can find our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. As always, give us a rating and review. This helps increase our visibility so we can bring you more content. Thanks again for listening. Join us next week and uh, we'll see you then. Excellent. Happy gaming. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Undercommon Taste. If you enjoyed what you heard, please pass it along to your friends. If you have comments, suggestions, or ideas, you can email them to us at undercommontaste at gmail.com. If we like your idea, it may make it into a future episode. You can find us wherever you find your podcasts, and we would greatly appreciate any likes, ratings, and comments you could provide. Find us on social media. We're at Undercommon Taste on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, and on Twitter at the handle at UCT Homebrew. If you would like to help support the show financially, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash undercommontaste. Our theme is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find her online at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmaryccrowell. Thanks again for listening, and stay safe. You'll hear from us again soon.